0: book is Acts. Acts is a historical book, which is a little different than the Gospels. Not that the Gospels aren't historical, but the Gospels are, um, they're more of a narrative that has a theological bent to it. They are stories that have, they are true, they are in fact historical stories that have been arranged to tell a theological story. Acts actually isn't all that different. Acts is written by, we know, the apostle Paul. He identifies himself in the beginning of the gospel, and, uh, uh, the gospel of Luke and in the beginning of Acts. Acts is part two of this book. Acts, two, or Acts is the, part, the second part of Luke's gospel. There is effectively, like you could just read them one into the other and they are one book. So beginning of the book, Luke's gospel, end of the book is the book of Acts. Here's a fascinating um, difference between the two, however. Your notes there say the kingdom. If we just do a lexical study, and Jim kind of went over what that means last week, you just go into your concordance, type in the word kingdom, basileia, and it finds everywhere that that word is actually used. In Luke's gospel, it's used 42 times. Explicitly, Luke in his gospel talks about the kingdom overtly so 42 times and if you go and talk to see all the times where he references the kingdom or you can draw kind of a subtext about the kingdom it's many many more times than that the point is in a gospel though luke is a very long gospel that mentions anything 42 times it's an important idea to this book The Gospel of Luke is all about Jesus coming and inaugurating and bringing into being the kingdom of God, is how he describes it. Matthew describes it as kingdom of heaven. Big, big deal in Luke's Gospel. Here's the weird thing. Luke, the very same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, turns around and writes the book of Acts, and he only mentions kingdom explicitly eight times. Why this sudden shift in focus? Why is the gospel all about the kingdom and then the history of the early church, how the church expanded from Jerusalem and we'll see into all Judea and Samaria and into the ends of the earth? Why does it only mention the kingdom eight times? And, and, I, and I think it's actually really fascinating to study how Luke changes how he talks about it, but the book of Acts is just as much about the kingdom as the gospel is. So let's read just kind of, uh, I, I'm going to just kind of read some um, some example passages from Luke so you can get a feel for how Luke uh, talks about the kingdom in his gospel. This is what he says. In Luke 1, you, don't have, you can maybe jot these down. You won't have time to go to them all. But in Luke 1, Luke um, is recording kind of the, the prophecy or the, the description of Jesus coming and of the... the um, the incarnation. And he says, and he, that would be Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That is the house of Israel, the people of Israel. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is going to come. He's going to reign over the nation of Israel and his kingdom will be an everlasting one. That's Luke 1. Luke 4, shortly after he has the temptation in the desert, he is is dealing with he, he is trying to get away and he's preaching in synagogues and people don't want him to leave. He's trying to kind of get away by himself and he says to them in Luke four forty three, I must preach the good news of the kingdom. Anywhere you see good news, that's the word gospel. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. And then I love this line, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus tells us why he came. To proclaim the gospel, which is the good news of the kingdom of God. Luke 8 um, this is right after he has the, the encounter in the man's house where a woman, a, a sinful woman comes in and bathes his feet and, and has this very strange experience and he tells her that her sins are forgiven. And they're questioning him. And he says this in Luke 8, one. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news, carrying on what he did with this woman, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him. So you see the disciples being a part of it now. In Luke 9, he sent out the disciples to proclaim the good news, the kingdom of God, and to heal. And then further down in Luke 9, and when the crowds kind of um, learned that he was around right before he feeds the 5,000, they were following him, and he welcomes them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. This kingdom is something that Jesus is proclaiming. It's something that he's bringing as he heals people. Further down in Luke 9, Jesus says to them, talking, says to this man, talking about like the, the cost of following him, the cost of being one in the kingdom, leave the dead to bury their own dead. In effect, your family is necessarily less important than my kingdom, Jesus says. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. And as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 11, he's teaching his disciples how to pray. And When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he heals a man who can't speak shortly thereafter. And they're questioning him, saying, are you, are you like demonic yourself? Are you working for the powers of evil that you can control evil powers like this? And Jesus says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And now he's saying the kingdom of God is here and now. Preach the kingdom, heal through the kingdom, the kingdom is here. In Luke 13, he starts to hint at the fact that this kingdom is for more than just the nation of Israel. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God, foreshadowing the Gentile inclusion. In Luke 17, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, so that's a future reality, when will this kingdom come, they ask? Jesus answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. They say, when's the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus says, well, actually, it's not going to come as you expect, because um, what you can't see is that because I'm here, the kingdom is already here. In Luke 21, he's talking, this is a, where he's talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and prophesying about kind of the end where God is going to do some judging. He says, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Luke 22, he's, this is in a passage where they're asking, can they sit at his left and right hand? And he says, now the greatest need to become the least, If you're going to be a a part of my kingdom, you need to serve. And then he says this, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now he's asking his followers to become leaders in the kingdom, to have delegated authority in the kingdom. And this is a huge theme as the gospel is continued to be proclaimed in the New Testament. And then finally, this is the passage we all know so well, hanging on a cross, talking to a man hanging next to him. The man says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke, you can hardly turn a page in Luke without finding profound truths about the kingdom. And this is just a small sample. And yet when we come to the book of Acts, the word kingdom just isn't used very often. And yet I would say the the idea is as present as anywhere else in scripture. So we looked at Luke's gospel. Let's look at the book of Acts. How does the structure of Acts explain um, the purpose of the book, the reason why Luke wrote this? And so I'm gonna be in Acts 1. You can go there, flip over from Acts 2 if you're already there. It's very interesting how Luke begins this book, and then it's also quite telling how he ends it. So this is Acts one, starting in verse one. Luke says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is a name that means lover of God or God lover. This is the same man who received his gospel. So this is part two of a very, very long letter. Could you imagine getting this letter in the mail? This is part two of a very long letter from Luke to a man named Theophilus. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, if you are an underliner of your Bible, I know not all of us like to do that, but if you are, I would underline or highlight that word began because it's very critical. That tells us a lot about this the kingdom of God and its proclamation. Um, When In the book of Luke, he tells us, in that first book, I told you everything that Jesus began to do, began to teach and to do. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, and you know, this tells us what he was doing. So basically, Jesus has suffered. He's died. He's been buried. He's resurrected. And then it's telling us what he did between his resurrection and his ascension appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now imagine that you were hearing this. Because here's, here's what I hope that we can achieve tonight. I hope we can get a better clarity, a better grasp on the, the term, the kingdom of God. Some of you, I see, were with me yesterday in a Bible study. So a lot of this is going to cover some of the same ideas, but from a different passage. But what does he mean by kingdom of God? Because think about what the disciples have witnessed. Jesus has already become incarnate. He has already worked miracles, healed people. He has already gone to Jerusalem with a death wish. You don't poke the, poke the bear that many times and try to get in fights with Pharisees if you're not trying to get killed, and he was very good at that. And so Jesus goes and gets himself arrested. They have a sham of a trial. They convict him for something he didn't do, and they torture him and execute him. Then he is buried, and he's in the ground for two and a half days, and then he rises from the dead. What more gospel could you get? And then Jesus, what does he do when he comes back from the dead? Just continues talking about the kingdom of God. So, didn't they just see everything? And Jesus, for 40 days, just talks with them about the kingdom of God. So what, what is he saying? What, is, what does he mean when he says the kingdom of God? Let's skip down to verse six. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, when will you, or will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Put yourself in the mind of an ancient Israelite. You are God's chosen people. You've been redeemed out of slavery a number of times. There's some really uh, humorous parts in the middle of John's gospel where there, we've never been slaves to anybody. Uh, Egypt, Persia, Babylon. But um, they've, they've, God has brought them out of these positions where they are no longer the, the, like the, 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 the chosen people and they are now, we are Israel. We are back in the Holy Land. We have a great temple that Herod built for us. Everything is going well. And I have to think that the disciples are saying, Jesus, we do believe you're the Messiah. We do believe that the day of the Lord is here. It has come. And I think that they're saying, This still doesn't look all that awesome. Like, there's still Roman soldiers everywhere. We are still an oppressed people. We still sit underneath an occupying army that is taxing the daylights out of us. This does not look like what it means to be God's chosen people. So they ask him, will you at this time restore your uh, uh, your kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus says, it's not for you to know. Times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In effect, Jesus says, bad question. Try again. Not a really good question. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They say, will you now restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus says, dumb question. Here's what you should ask. What should we do now? And Jesus says, if if Luke is a book about Jesus beginning to teach about the kingdom of God, Acts is a book about the church continuing to preach. Continuing. Somewhere in there. Acts is about the church continuing to preach the kingdom of God. And Paul is a beautiful example of that. We'll actually read two of his sermons, assuming we have time. Um, But if you flip on to the back of the book... You can learn a lot by how Luke opens the book, talking about the church needing to carry on what Jesus has already started in Luke's gospel. And then chapter, 30, uh, chapter 28 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 30, he says this regarding Paul. Paul's finally made it to Rome. And he, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. In effect, Luke starts his book by saying Jesus began to do all these things and to teach about the kingdom of God and what should the church do? Don't ask dumb questions. Instead ask, what should we do, Jesus? And Jesus says, you need to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. You need to carry on the ministry that I've started. And then he ends the book with, and that's exactly what Paul is doing in Rome he is continuing to boldly proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here is what is fascinating to me because I think that kingdom of God can sometimes become a catch-all phrase that just means many, many things. But I want to be clear. What are they not, what does it not seem to say they're preaching? It doesn't really seem like they're preaching salvation which is bizarre. But no, they're they're proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so I like to ask this question. When it comes to their proclamation, which is the gospel, are they proclaiming salvation or the kingdom? Now, lest you think that I'm creating some sort of false dichotomy, I don't think that they're unrelated. I do think that we sometimes use them as synonyms, as if they're the same thing. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, I'll tell people how to get saved. That's not what I said. I said, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And here's what I want us to see. Acts and the gospels talk as if there's a difference. The kingdom of God is not the same thing as the plan of salvation. Salvation, it seems, is the result of the kingdom of God. And Jesus was proclaiming the gospel, which is his kingdom, which is that he reigns and rules over everything. And one of the beautiful benefits of that is salvation. And he turns and he says to his disciples, proclaim the kingdom. And Paul welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the kingdom, as Acts begins in chapter one, really is this charge to continue proclaiming the kingdom to the ends of the earth. And then the kingdom as Acts ends is proof that Paul was doing exactly that. Now, Roman numeral number three there on your notes. This book, the book of Acts, if we're studying the kingdom as told in the book of Acts, is all about the mission of the kingdom see, Luke, I believe, intended that this book would be a treatise on the expansion of the kingdom. I told you the the word um, verbatim is only used eight times in the whole book, which it's a large book. Here are a couple of other times, we won't go read them, but a couple of other times where the word kingdom is actually used. And hear how this takes place in the book of Acts in chapter 8. Philip leaves Jerusalem and is preaching the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom in Samaria. There's step one. I want you to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In, Luke, in Acts 14, Paul preached that the entrance into the kingdom was through hardship. He basically says, this kingdom is no cakewalk. It involves suffering. In, Act, in Acts 19, Paul spoke of the kingdom boldly in the synagogue in Ephesus, so much so that he was shortly thereafter run out and had to go speak in more of a public forum, but his gospel was not accepted in the synagogue. In Acts 20, I actually do want to read this one, just a couple of verses. In Acts 20, it's amazing um, the connection that Paul draws between the gospel of the kingdom of God and the will of God itself. So in Acts 20, at the end of the chapter, Paul is, he is saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. That's, probably, that's the city where Paul spent the majority of his time uh, before he goes to Jerusalem, becomes a prisoner, and before he goes to Rome via shipwreck and many other trials. Um, He's in Ephesus and he is saying goodbye to these men that he has trained to be church leaders, these men that he loves very, very dearly. And this is what he says, starting in verse 25 of Acts 20. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom not proclaiming salvation, not proclaiming how to be forgiven for your sins, not proclaiming how to get to heaven, proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I'm going and I'm probably not coming back, Paul says. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I proclaim to all of you the kingdom of God. In another breath, I did not shrink from proclaiming the whole counsel of God. I love the connection that Paul draws between those. And it should, it should put to death a little bit in us this, this need to wonder what the will of God is because I think if you understand the kingdom and its call to sacrifice and service and obedience, you very much know the will of God. I don't know if the will of God really cares where I went to college. I think it really, you know, I don't know if the will of God was all that much involved with who I married. I think whoever I said I do to, that became the will of God for me. I do think the will of God is very much consumed with my holiness and obedience and service and living out these kingdom ideas. The kingdom throughout the book of Acts, Acts is a beautiful book about missions and church planning. It is a missional idea. If you run through and you find everywhere where kingdom is mentioned verbatim or is at least implied, the kingdom in the book of Acts involves evangelism, discipleship, church planting, encouragement, and endurance, and suffering. The book of Acts tells us of the Holy Spirit growing his church and equipping his people to continue growing his church. This is a really really helpful way of thinking of the book of Acts. Back in chapter one, he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take my kingdom. Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. The book of Acts, if we're talking in terms of kingdoms, it is a book of royal imperialism. It is a book of conquest You think Joshua, like they conquered a lot of things? The gospel, the kingdom of God in the book of Acts conquers Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Paul goes and takes care of Cyprus, goes up to southern Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, becomes an incredible evangelist. Eventually, I think he was gonna go to Russia before uh, and to China and to India before the Holy Spirit said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. Paul goes that way, he goes to Greece, the kingdom conquers italy when it gets to rome i think that paul got to spain this is a book of this is a book of royal imperialism of one kingdom conquering another and another and another and another it's an incredible book it's an incredible book of of spiritual warfare and of the kingdom of god winning left and right the book of Acts is all about the mission of the kingdom, even if it only mentions it eight times. Now, I want to look at a couple of sermons um, that tell us a little bit of how they preached the kingdom. Because, again, we've just kind of made the case that it was a big deal. and um, But I want to know how we should talk about it. Um, because, again, I have this concern that we have in our minds, and I do this as well. No distinction between the two. No distinction between salvation and the kingdom. And if you look at how Peter in Acts 2 preaches the kingdom, it's very different than I would have done it, which is why I probably never had 3,000 people respond to anything, among other reasons. But let's go through Peter's sermon, and I want to... I want us to look at the structure of his sermon, not so that we can all become preachers and learn how to put together a real good sermon, but so that we can see what is he talking about whenever he proclaims the kingdom of God? What is he declaring? And probably what we're going to see, we're gonna be a little alarmed by what he doesn't say. So, Acts 2 in verse 14, Jesus or Peter is standing there. Um, go down to Acts two sixteen. This is where I want to start his sermon. It's amazing. Peter doesn't start where would we start our gospel sermon? I would probably start with, have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever like told a lie or thought about a lie? You ever wanted to take something that wasn't yours? You're a sinner? That's kinda how I'd start this. You're broken. You need Jesus. It's not how Peter starts his sermon. He starts in the story of Israel. And you might think, well, maybe that makes sense if you're speaking to a bunch of people who were like part of Israel. But I think you'll see this is a pattern that not only works if you're with the story, you're with um, the Jewish people and, and Israelites. I think it's a pattern that if you don't proclaim the story of Israel, I don't know if you're proclaiming the entire gospel. So let's see what he does. Acts 2, starting in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, starting with Israel's story. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is such a bizarre term to us, although we get it because we are way, way, way this side of everything happening. To them, he is using Israel's phrases. He is using Israel's imagery. He is using Israel's hope in a one-day coming Messiah. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. There's a real blood moon right there. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we might read that and say, wow, I cannot wait until something that crazy happens. That must be talking about the end of time. Peter's talking about Pentecost. He's talking about the Holy Spirit falling on the church. And he uses all this graphic imagery to just say, like, this is divine intervention. This cannot be explained by any natural means. And he uses Israel's story. He uses Israel's images to tell this story. And it's not until the very end of this little section that he says, and then, by the way, if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. He sure takes a while to get to the salvation part. Starts with the story of Israel and nestled inside the story of Israel He tells a story that you really can't tell without that of Israel. He starts next on the story of Jesus. If any of you are like really obsessive about certain things, I'm going to drive you nuts because I just kind of switch in and out of all caps. I apologize. It just happens. Now he goes to the story of Jesus. Men of Israel, this is verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That implies an understanding of Israel's story. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter was not a seeker-sensitive guy. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter tells the story of Jesus, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. But did you know how? notice how he just, he frames it in Israel's story as if this is a fulfillment of a bigger story. That idea is gonna be very important. Then, He moves on from the story of Jesus and he talks about a Davidic king. I don't know about you guys. I don't often include um, a, a good lecture on the Davidic king in my gospel presentation. Peter did. This is what he says. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And we'll see here in just a second, David is not talking about himself when he said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He is talking about a future, a better version of him. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. A nice little historical fact is that the, the like royal tombs were very easily defined. They were very well-decorated, and it's quite, um, it's quite clear that they would have been able to go and see David's tomb. Yep. His tomb is still there. Oh, there's Jesus. Jesus' tomb is now a dance hall. It has nothing to do with anybody being dead in there. But David's still in his. So this prophecy couldn't have referred to David. And Peter carries on. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, that is the throne of David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's gospel, his proclamation of the kingdom, has thus far begun with the story of Israel. Briefly went into the story of Jesus and said that if Jesus fulfills the story of Israel, he also fulfills the story of the Davidic line. Then he goes on, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted. Now he goes from the Davidic king to the exalted king. Takes Jesus another step above David. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing Peter says like this amazing spectacle, this Holy Spirit descending on the church here at Pentecost, that's a result of God delivering on his promise to one day bring a Messiah through the Davidic line who fulfills the story of Israel. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Peter keeps going back to the story of Israel. Then he gives us the point of this whole message. What is the point of this message? Peter says this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. The point of the gospel is that Jesus is now king of the universe. That's the point, Peter says. Therefore, let all of Israel know that God has exalted him to both king and lord. Lord and Christ. Christ means anointed one, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Thus far, Peter's sermon Sure seems to be favoring this. He's mentioned being saved once, and then he won't stop talking about a king who's fulfilling an ancient kingdom, who is fulfilling the role of an ancient throne, that of David, and who has now been made both Lord, that is, supreme king, and Messiah. Then it says in verse 37 okay, if that's the point, how do we respond? How do we respond? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, Peter's audience, they were cut to the heart And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Isn't it fascinating that Peter has not talked about original sin, has not talked about the need to be redeemed from our brokenness, has not talked about that at all. He just said, there is now one true king over all things. And that alone convicted them to say, what do we do? Like that, he didn't have to scare them. He just said like, this is the facts. There is one king over everything, and they're cut to the heart. They say, what should we do? And their response is, you need to repent and be baptized. And then, Peter says, brings in the salvation part. What does repenting and being baptized result in? For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, ask the question, what's the major theme of Peter's gospel? Of his sermon here. It's not salvation. The major theme is that Jesus completes or fulfills the story of Israel. Peter keeps going back to prophecies and said, Jesus is this, Jesus is this, Jesus fulfills this, therefore he is Lord and King. He is the Messiah. And those facts alone cause them to say, What do we do? Repent and be baptized. Okay. What happens after that? You'll be forgiven. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see how maybe sometimes we, me included, get the cart before the horse when we start talking about forgiveness and getting into heaven? And I think that that's just like, that's, that's not how the apostles preached the kingdom. They preached the king, not life insurance. They preached the king. Paul has a great sermon. He has a number of great sermons in this book. We're going to pick one actually we're going to pick one and a half i'm going to do a short one if we have time paul's first missionary journey you can find it in acts 13 and 14 he he uh he takes off from antioch he and barnabas sail to a little island by the name of cyprus then they go after they um they do some work across the island they go north to asia minor modern day turkey um And then they go, and then he's preaching a sermon here in Antioch in Pisidia. This would be uh, kind of a little bit inside the mainland of what was then known as Asia Minor. Today, central Turkey. This is Paul's sermon, and notice how it seems to follow a similar structure here. Starting in verse um, 16 of Acts 13, this is what Paul says. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He starts with the story of Israel. Doesn't start with a brokenness. Doesn't start with a you're bad and you need help. Starts with the story of Israel again. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. We've been talking about that. On Sunday mornings. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Why would you be preaching this? Hundreds of miles from Jerusalem. I wonder if it's, I mean, he's, he's talking to um, a mixed company here. This is not all Jews. This would be mixed company. And yet he starts with the story of Israel. It's almost as if it's necessary. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed them, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, a good king, who will want to do my will. Tells the story of Israel. Then he shifts into the story of Jesus of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Why do you got to back end Jesus with the story of Israel? Because Jesus' story doesn't make sense without the story of Israel. I, I'm like, this is just beginning to become a new hobby horse of mine. We, we don't know our Old Testaments well, but isn't that convicting because that was Jesus' Bible, that was Paul's Bible, that was Peter's Bible, and that's how they told the gospel, As Jesus fulfilling those 39 books we really don't like to read, really convicts me. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, meaning the Messiah. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to tie carries on with the story of Jesus. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, that would be God-fearing Gentiles. To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Like Paul says, you know why they didn't like catch Jesus and his gospel because they didn't connect him to the story of Israel they didn't connect him to the prophets that were speaking about him so they killed him verse 28 and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death they asked Pilate to have him executed and when they carried out all that was written of him they took that's so funny they didn't understand what was written of him and then they carried all of it out I love the irony there Paul's a really sarcastic preacher (laughs) And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. That's the story of Jesus. As Paul nestled it inside the story of, Jerusalem, of Israel. Now he's going to connect Israel's story to Jesus' story for us. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to the, us, their children, by raising Jesus. The point of Paul's gospel is that Jesus fulfills the story of Israel, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, the Davidic king." Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Paul quotes the very same text that Peter did in Acts 2. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. It's almost as if they have a little bit of a formula. There's this Davidic king coming, and after all, David's dead, so who is it? Well, it's this guy that keeps fulfilling everything that Israel was all about. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And then just like this one, he gets to, well, how do we respond? And what are the benefits of a response to this kingdom gospel? Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Then he goes right back into Israel's story. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Isn't it amazing how Paul Teaches the gospel, proclaims the kingdom of God just like Peter does. Let me tell you the story of Israel. Okay, got it? Now let me tell you the story of this man Jesus. Let me tell you how he fulfills that story of Israel. Let me tell you how he sits on a throne. After all, this is a message of the kingdom. And then let me tell you how you respond to that and what the benefits of a response are. See, salvation is the benefit of a response to the gospel, it's not the gospel itself. The kingdom is the gospel as we see preached in Acts. So your question there on um, Roman numeral number two, Paul's sermon in Antioch and Pisidia, how does Paul connect the kingdom to salvation? Salvation is a benefit of the kingdom. It's not the kingdom itself. They're not synonyms. One brings about the other. I want to look real quick at Paul's sermon in Athens. This is a very different um, sermon. This is Acts 17. But Paul takes, so he's got a truly Gentile audience now. He, we've, in, Peter's, in Peter's sermon and in Paul's sermon, we have seen that there have been Hebrews, there have been Jews, and God-fearing Gentiles in the crowd. So you can speak. Uh, like I can talk to you guys, use a lot of like um, inside information about Stillwater, about Oklahoma State, because we're all kind of here and we all kind of get it. So I don't have to explain everything, but watch how Paul waltzes in to what would have been Harvard or Yale at the time, would have been Cambridge, Oxford, would have been this intellectual center in Athens. And he walks up on the Areopagus where the philosophers and all the scholars and the people that would have been involved in high education, the intellectuals of the day, and he walks in and he presents the gospel of the kingdom, but he adapts it for them amazing how he adapts it and doesn't lose the story of Israel. Acts 17, well we need to read a little bit back just so we understand some of the context. Verse 16 of Acts 17, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. A little side note, going off notes for a second. I love that Paul preached the resurrection so much they thought that it, was, it itself was a God. He's preaching foreign divinities. Yeshua, and then the Greek word for uh, resurrection is where we get the name Anastasia, Anastasis. He was, taught, he was using what sounded so much like a, uh, a female name they thought it was a deity because he wouldn't shut up about the resurrection. Like, that's how critical it was to Jesus fulfilling everything in Israel's story. If you want to see Paul's love for the resurrection and the necessity of the resurrection, read, um, I think it's the very end of Romans 4 describes where that the resurrection is actually connected to our justification. I'll tell Drew next week to mention that. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, the major, major resurrection section. Anyway, Paul talked about it so much they thought he was talking about another God. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That is Luke's very sly way of saying, whatever's new, they love. Whatever's old, they hate. They will Whatever the newest stuff on the block, all about it. Doesn't matter if it's true, just so long as it's new. Verse 22. And Paul, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, "Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription." To the unknown God. They loved their God so much, they would just want to make sure they covered all their bases. So in case we missed one, we, we did a pretty good job. But in case we missed one, let's just put like a blank tablet there. To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. There's that word again, proclaim. And here he repackages Israel's story for them. The God who made the world and everything in it, Genesis 1. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. There's a little interesting bit that we actually get quite a bit in the Old Testament. Nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul is preaching the story of Israel's God been very different from theirs and he made from one man this is Israel's story that they all came from a man named Adam he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him that's very Romans 1-ish Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is using their own philosophy now. He's quoting their own poets. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, he is teaching Israel's story using the Greek, like, paradigm. He is taking their teachers, he's taking their way of understanding things, and he's teaching our Old Testament. I love, it's almost sneaky. I love it, but he's teaching the story of Israel. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Ten Commandments, taught it. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. And then he gets into the response. The times of ignorance God overlooked. This again is Romans 1. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he had appointed. Story of Jesus. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul tells the story of Israel, the story of Jesus and he summons them to response. And if they needed proof, he gives them the most beautiful proof that we should offer. Look, I will renounce Jesus the day you definitively disprove the resurrection. Because Paul says that's all that matters. You, you show me Jesus' body and I'll renounce him on the spot. And so Paul says in this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. No wonder Paul talked about it so much. So Paul adapts the gospel, the fact that Jesus is the resolution to Israel's story to the Greek Western world. We should study this sermon quite a bit because he's teaching to the same mindset that we speak to all the time here in the United States. And then he asks, and then I in the notes, what proof does Paul use to substantiate his gospel? The only proof you need, the fact that there is no body and the fact that the most powerful army in the world could not produce a body and the fact that a very powerful clergy known as the Jewish leadership could not produce a body all the proof in the world i need christianity is the easiest religion to squash if you're rome or the jewish leadership and they couldn't do it and you have 12 morons just take the roman world by storm because no one could produce the body and paul says it's all the proof i need read first corinthians 15 These three sermons really help us understand the contents of the kingdom message. It is not salvation by grace through faith, although that's true. That is kind of how the kingdom works itself out in us, but that's not the message of the kingdom that Jesus said to go and proclaim. He said, Go tell everyone the story of Israel and the fact that Jesus fulfills everything, and now he's the king of the universe. And if that's true, the implications are incredible because now we have access to forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. So then your next section down, talking about Jesus's redemptive reign. Here's the structure. This is how the Gospel of Acts presents the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is framed by Israel's story. It centers on the lordship of Jesus, not the savior side of Jesus. It centers on his lordship. It demands a response and it saves and redeems. I fear that so often we describe the gospel using only that fourth point and we leave out the first three. The fact that it is Israel's story and Jesus is the Lord of everything and thus it demands a response. If we're talking wars here, if we're talking kingdoms in opposition to one another, Jesus says, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Basically, walk across enemy lines, talk to enemy soldiers, and say, I really think it would be a good idea if you come with me to the other side. That's the gospel. The gospel is getting people to defect to the other army. We are now going to the kingdom of God, and we're going to fight over there. And and again, Acts is a book about royal imperialism. And then we're going to come back and get these guys. We're going to come back, and we're going to expand Jesus' territory Started in Jerusalem, went to Judea, went to Samaria, went to the ends of the earth. Rome would have been kind of the ends of the earth in their mind at that time. The Gospel of Acts walks through the kingdom like that. So I'm asking under like the Roman numeral two, does does Acts teach a kingdom gospel or a salvation gospel? And we had to ask seriously, what did the early church leaders teach? What did they preach? Are the kingdom and salvation the same thing, or is one the result of the other? Does the proclamation of the kingdom, the telling of the gospel, result in salvation? I know that many of us are probably feeling like I'm splitting hairs, but I feel that there's a big problem um, in many of us, that we just we want to preach the forgiveness side of things and we, we're scared of the allegiance to a new king side of things. And I would say one brings about the other much more effectively to preach allegiance to a king. For, for like repentance is so natural when you have a new allegiance. Repentance is unnatural if you're just scared of the punishment. But when I have a new allegiance, repentance is unbelievably natural. Difficult, much more natural. I'm thinking there's more notes. Okay, yes. Your last point there. We just have a few minutes. Acts takes place in the Roman Empire. And it tells the story that Caesar is nothing and Jesus is the one true king. Jesus is Caesar in Acts. Which is why when you end the book with Paul is in Rome, under Roman house arrest, boldly proclaiming the fact that Caesar is not king, can you like understand how incredible that is? That's treason. Paul is after all a Roman citizen. That's treason to say the things that Paul said. And it says and he boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God and the lordship of Christ. The message of the Bible is this that the rightful king has taken his throne. And that those of us who have tried to usurp his authority, now you can go back to Genesis 3 and talk about those who want to rebel. And we've been given authority. We've been delegated authority. And when we want to go and take more than we were given, it says that those of us who have tried to usurp his authority have been dealt with in either judgment or redemption. But the kingdom definitely forces a decision. The kingdom of God is the story of the Bible. Our salvation is a beautiful consequence of Jesus' reign as the king of kings. And if you don't know this verse, um, you can go and underline it. It's, it is the flagship verse, somewhat of a thesis statement of the entire Bible. Genesis 1, 28, God, after creating man and woman in his image, and in, in Genesis 1, 28 says, and then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Basically, enjoy one another, make babies and fill this place up. And then subdue it. Like the king of the universe delegates authority and says, I want you to control this place. You are going to govern this planet on my behalf and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We were to operate as as small k kings and queens underneath the king and we messed that up and then the whole bible is god bringing that back into order we are again living genesis 128 because now we are in the kingdom we're again in the we're banished from the kingdom removed from god's temple his king his palace the the garden itself Now we're again members of the kingdom. The difference between a kingdom gospel and a salvation gospel is a discipleship issue. This is why it matters so much to us because it's a discipleship issue. One, the salvation gospel only concerns itself with escaping punishment. The kingdom gospel concerns itself with living out the great commission and making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey you see how one is escaping the flames and one is expanding the kingdom territory? Which one did Jesus say to do? Go and proclaim the kingdom from this city to this territory to that country to the ends of the earth. I want you to move my kingdom out. Didn't say I want you to just be saved, although that's really a beautiful side effect of it. Jesus told his followers to go and claim more territory for his kingdom. The book of Acts ends with Paul doing exactly that. Luke intended for his readers to close this book, to put it down, and to understand that we too are citizens, ambassadors, and rulers in the kingdom of God. And we must exercise our dominion, our God-given dominion over this earth, and proclaim the kingdom and the one true King Jesus. And I just think we've got to learn how to do it like this. Because this was how the church modeled for us. This created fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who defected from the kingdom of evil, from the powers and the principalities of darkness, defected from that into a new kingdom where they were willing to just die for the sake of it. And they did, many of them. It's amazing how a kingdom-centered gospel produces disciples and a salvation-centered gospel just really doesn't. That's the kingdom according to the book of Acts. Somehow, Drew is going to make it through everything else in the New Testament. I wish him good luck. I'll be in the back laughing. Um, let me pray real fast, and we will be done. Father, as always, we are very, very grateful for your scriptures. And grateful for the fact that if we'll simply mind them, we will find the good news and the truth about who you are and how you have ordained that things should be. And Father, I pray that you would teach us to know what it means to live as citizens, as members, as rulers of your kingdom, and that we would represent you well, and that we would carry out our task of proclaiming your authority and your sovereignty over all things, and that all of it would bring you incredible amounts of glory and praise.